Hello and welcome to another episode of the St. George's Rod and Star, the official podcast of the Church of St. George the Martin Kales River, alongside the chapelries of St. Mark and St. Monica. I am Lindsay Shooters, your host on this exploration of faith during this time of continued crisis. And today is a special day for the parish of St. George. It is the patronal festival, the festival of St. George the Martyr. Is he still a saint? We will discuss this. Um, I'm joined as always to clarify these things. Uh, by the rector of our parish, the Archdeacon Rodney Whiteman. How are you doing today, sir? Good day to you, my brother. Um, as I said to you earlier on, I was uh, engaged in a baptism this morning, um, Eucharist, and also a requiem mass. So uh, we brought some people into the world and we sent another one out. Mm. Um, and so it was a full morning, um, but very, very blessed services. I enjoyed just being able to be participating in um, in the services itself. So I'm a little bit, uh, you know, uh, tired as a result of that because, you know, I had to preach uh, as well. So, um, but the benefits of just being there and working alongside others is always great. Mm. Otherwise, I'm doing very well. Celebrated, Trudy and I celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary on Wednesday. And as I said to you earlier on, Wonderful day. April month is the month that moved my soul to ask my wife to marry on that day um, because of the month of April and the song April Love. And then sub subsequent to that, found out it was also Hitler's birthday. Mm -hmm. So I'm not so sure what the connection is and what the significance is, but there you go. That's history for you. And how are you, <laughs> Lindsay, doing? I'm doing well. I also attended a baptism this morning, actually, at the Catholic Church in Maitland. It is also my wedding anniversary with my wonderful wife, Monique, on Tuesday the 26th. Um, I think I've said it before, but my motivations for choosing, or at least our motivations for choosing that date, was because it was the anniversary of like our first date. So we can never, I, I can never forget when the first date was. And when the wedding was, and it fell on a Monday that year, so it kind of limited the potential guest list as well, because we had quite a small little garden wedding. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whilst we're talking, and I hope all the blessings to you and Monique on the twenty-sixth uh, of your twelfth anniversary. But while we're talking uh, anniversaries, which is the call of our histories, personal histories, and our journeys with people that we fall in love with. And um, um, you asked the question about St. George. Mm. Now, St. George has been around, as it were, in the Anglican Church and in the Roman Catholic Church forever. Um, but as, as history is studied and new researchers go into it, it was discovered. I only found out about, I think, the year before COVID came our way that the, they, there's this um, literary dynamic. I don't know if it still exists in terms of, of the way people do it, but then St. George exists now in the new research as a legend and not a, an historical um, person mm. that proof that he existed. Um, and of course, St. George is uh, the saint 
the red the redness of the flag of England and of George's own symbol blood, um, but blood that of of the conquering spirit, the blood of the enemy, which is a dragon that had um, he had beat up. But it was legend, not mm. necessarily an historical event, which is why he actually doesn't appear as strongly in the littered, in the lectionaries where our readings are found and our colleagues are found as he used to be in the past. Of course, this mm. will affect the history of our cathedral in Cape Town, uh, our own parish here, and then we have another parish that I that that is also in the Archdeaconry and Diocese of Falls by Archdeaconry of Bludans, and that is St. George's in Grootdrakenstein. Mm. So obviously, um, there is the, the legend, but then of course, when you hear new facts, so you start then thinking of redefinition. Does the symbolism around George still matter to us? What what does he represent? Because I mean, when you think of when I think, you know, this is my personal view. So I can accept that at one stage he there was a history because even Venerable Bede who wrote in the in the in the in in the seven hundred uh, um, he he captured it as an historical thing, but given the 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 balance between history and legend, um, the symbolism I think still matters. So mm. for me, when I look at the, the St George's um, uh, symbol, the um, I then say. Does it stand out to me as something that I, I as a Christian can embrace? Well, if I look at the book of Revelation or the Revelation of John, um, we do say that the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ washes us pure and clean. So the cross then on St. George's um, um the the symbol that presents him as the cross and the white background mm. and it seems to for me represent something that john in his revelation uh, understood about the conquering um death of our lord jesus christ where his blood was poured out there's that image in revelations where he looked at the saints and the saints had their robes were white and the angel informs John that their robes had been washed in the blood of the lamb. Mm. And so this blood, the symbolism of this blood, it doesn't stain, but purifies. So if I'm to look at George's symbol, the symbol of St. George, and not look at whether he beat up the dragon or not, whether he rides around on a white horse with a spear in his hand, that's for me not, but I can certainly reflect on the cross and the background to his cross and say, yes, it does give me that picture. And mm. I can read <laughs> I suppose read into it that message that I think is projecting to me when I look at the symbolism of the cross, the the the, the cross in red as symbol of blood, and the background which is the robes of the saints. Jo George is 
either historically or legendarily, he is a saint in the church. Mm. And he's been, I mean, St. George's um, Church, yeah, is probably now in its 107th year of dedication to the service of God. So for mm. 107 years, that has been their public witness. Yeah. Everybody knows about Anglican Church, Cales River. And um, whether it was in the in the main road or whether it's here in Sarepta, there's Hamden. St. George's has a very unique um, place in the history of Cales River mm. and in mm. the diocese of Paul's Bay. Very much so. But there is um, some, albeit a little bit shaky, but uh, some historical evidence of of George who rose up out of I forget exactly where he was Greek, if I'm not mistaken, but he was in the charge of the Emperor Diocletian, who preceded Constantine. Um, and Diocletian will be forever remembered um, as as kind of a herald of the apocalypse, because he was the last really savage emperor who wanted to wipe out Christianity throughout the empire. Um, so George never actually made it to Britain. Um, because at the time, Diocletian was stationed in Antioch, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but, yeah. Um, so there is that. And then, obviously, George refused to um, give up his Christianity and then was put to death in one of the great Diocletian purges or persecutions, um, which is crazy. And then, obviously, Constantine, as we spoke last week, he rose up into power um, from Britain, actually, from the Isles. And then he kind of overcorrected for the Roman Empire. Isn't it interesting that Diocletian is, isn't he the emperor associated very much with the, with the, the revelation of John? Yes. The emperor that had murdered all the Christians because they refused to bow down to his image. Um, and... And it's very interesting that is there ever history written on history written where the church and the state never clashed? <laughs> um, where the church does become the state. It did become the state, but 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 those I mean there's obviously opposition to that, even though it became that. Mm. Um, we in our generations would argue very strongly against that. Even though as an Anglican church, we are associated with the queen as our um, head of state, head of church. Mm. And, mm. but that's all tied up with colonialism. Um, but you, but you are right. I mean, the, the, the Dutch reformed church was criticized heavily for its um, involvement with state and and um, the apartheid. I mean, it was at Stellenbosch University where those evil laws of apartheid were drawn up. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and it was all based on what they understood the, the scriptures to tell them. How they hit, they could read it like that, but it just shows you how easily we are persuaded, even when we read scripture, to come and read scripture from a, an, a different dogmatic perspective. Um, mm. uh, for uh, for for about uh, I suppose it was about survival, mm. and that is why, you know, churches criticize one another. Why? 
It's because about survival. I want to hold on to my point of view, and so I must make you the bad one uh, to show how unbiblical you are and un or you know unchristlike you are, and all that kind of dramas that plays itself out, which which inevitably is is a hogwash because it's not based on how one reads and interprets scripture. It's what one is reading into scripture to support your own point of view, mm. Uh, mm. which you want to hold as the best point of view. So that's the damage we do. So I think you're right. The church, that dynamic, that um, <laughs> relationship over the centuries, church and state citizenship has really played itself off in history. Uh, very, very interestingly, um, I mean, Rome and Italy is still very much, um, you know, I mean, Rome is considered a capital on its own. Yeah. <clears throat> the Vatican. Sorry, the Vatican. I, sorry, yeah, the Vatican is its own is its own country. Which is yeah. absolutely bizarre when you, if you like a bit of a map nerd, um, it's it's just insane. So, so is is the that um, Russian uh, um, philosopher right when he, he he read into history and said, you know, religion is the opiate of the people. If a government wants to steal the people from visiting the political strategies that they create in order to keep people suppressed use religion some sort of it in order to keep them and you know i'm saying that with my mind remembering i think it was in the 80s 85 around there because that's the time that we were looking for the for the release of nelson mandela mm. and mm. Evidence had surfaced a little later on. The same time this was happening, government allowed people from the evangelical wing of the church, charismatic wings of the church, to come and set up camp in uh, Goodwood um, and other places uh, where the so-called colored and black folk would be drawn to these wonderful religious, what's his name, tents, tented meetings or Goodwood showgrounds, and yeah. it was a way to quell the political uprising that was beginning to show its its head against the state. And in one section, they they really they really. I mean, if you look at Cape Town today, you would know that that mindset had had triggered itself very well. You know, um, not don't focus on the sin of the government. Let uh, Dietrich Bonhoff, not Dietrich Bonhoff, um, Reinhard Bonker and others come and tell you just how bad your sin is. And you know, in the mm-hmm. current community, that gold teeth you have, you normally, that was stolen from somebody's wealth. You know, your g- rings that you got on your fingers, all five fingers, um, that was stolen, the diamonds you have. So your, f- your way of repenting is to take it off and put it on the stage. And of course, we never heard about what happened, who took it, was it? Mm-hmm. You know, but then Reinhard Bunker comes here with trucks that Gaddafi had sponsored, all to quell the, upri- the, 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 the spirit of uprising that was happening in South Africa at the time. Isn't that interesting? I don't even know what I, I say right now because it's like we've traded roles because <laughs> you are now I teaching 
to the converted. You are literally <laughs> hitting all of the points that I've been on about for years at this point. And it's like we were having the conversation uh, last weekend on Monday um, uh, with my sisters and they were talking about how news gets distorted. We were talking about like ESCOM and how we had actually gone 29 days without load shedding and then the load shedding started and how it was represented and how the city of Cape Town misrepresents the importance of Steenbrus, um pump storage uh, where they don't tell the story of how many liters of diesel they are burning every day to keep the lights on, to keep um, the citizens of, or at least those who get their power from the city uh, to have less load shedding than those from ESCOM. And it's all just like a smear campaign um, to to down the government, which is part of the DA's anti-government agenda. Um, uh, but we won't go into that. So then I was like, so you're willing to accept that mainstream media, or at least your news media, is being led by an agenda. But if you go back hundreds of years to the Gutenberg press, um, the first mainstream media was that was printed was the Bible. And if you can believe now that news media is being manipulated to sway the ideas of the public, you can bet your bottom dollar that the Bible was edited to serve the purpose of the oppressors. I, I am not going to dispute what you say, because even whenever, they, whenever humans get involved, there is always going to be a kind of a bias. The mm. question, of course, is this goes across the board. Therefore, how do we then read the truth in all of these things? How do we, mm. uh, out of it, discern the truth? So even if, um, you know, I, I remember there was a there was a um, a guy who wrote something called Jesus's Third Way, and in there he critiqued the King James version of the Bible because when you look at it as being King James version, mm. then mm. bias falls on the benefit King James was going to have in that when people read it, uh, assumedly it was it was cor correctly translated from the original texts, um, and that is why John Sucker always says, you know. These translations is where the problem is. Is is um, I think there's about a hundred and fifty versions or translations of the scripture from the original text over time. Mm. If you go to Bible Gateway, I I you see just a little word could be put in there that can read as a bias for somebody. Mm. That is why we have to ask ourselves the questions always. What's the original here? And what did the original actually say? Because inevitably you would have noticed that the theme is about him being empowered as a witness for Jesus, drawn yeah. from the column of the day. Now, how do we become a witness? And with what are we being empowered in order to be a credible witness to Jesus. And does the gospel writings, um, are they complete documents that help us to discover truly 
who Jesus is in order for us to know that. Um, I mean, I asked the baptism class on Thursday in my Zoom meeting with them. The question you have to ask yourself as parents bringing children for baptism, does Jesus still matter in the 21st century? Is Jesus still important for your children to know about him? And why should they know about him going forward with their lives? Because the prayer we pray at baptism, the colleague says, may they grow in the stature of our Lord Jesus Christ. If that is what we do desire, then what does that really mean? Here we have a theme that says, there's a need to witness to Jesus. That's what newspapers do. Mm. Newspapers witness of events, witness about what goes on in the human society and how it, I mean, I don't know whether somebody would sit and wait, watch how the grass grows and then says, you know, um, I'm writing a, he a headline article about how grass grows. That we leave for science books, I suppose. Mm. But in this well, you could you, you could spin it if it was a new kind of scourge of like Bermuda grass that was just spreading wildly and exacerbating the effects of like springtime um, allergies and that sort of thing. Because remember, grass is wind pollinated. Uh, then there would be a very nice kind of head. I can actually see that lead. <laughs> I'm sorry, okay. my my media brain is no. never off. <laughs> That's right. So the witness of, of of as to when I write that article because I witnessed something, the intention of witnessing is what hmm. to get others informed, and by getting them informed to buy into your stories, either they're going to do research on their own and see if your witness is credible, hmm. or to say. If that's what that grass does, I want it close by me. So I'm going to try and plant it where I am in order for, for me to have the benefits this guy is talking about. Mm. So is it still important to witness to Jesus using the premise of the gospel, which is what we do every Sunday? This is the gospel of Christ. Listen to the good news proclaimed by the witness of the gospel writer. What do we say? Thanks be to God, praise to Christ our Savior. So the church sees the Bible in its catechism, sees the Bible as a credible witness. Now the question here, of course, is, does it see the Bible as a credible witness in its original form or in its translated form? It's interesting in the Anglican Church, in our rules and regulations, it stipulates what are the credible translations of the Bible that we ought to use, which is considered by our theologians to be closer to the original text. And when I went to seminary, the new revised standard, or sorry, the revised standard version of the Bible was seen as that, con that text. I still have my ordination Bible here that was given to me in 1984. This is when I was priested. When you deaconed, you get off the Bible. You get only the, 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 the New Testament part. But when you are priested, yes. you get the whole Bible. Okay. And um, a number of years later, when I studied 
um, a biblical course of three years by the Roman Catholics, uh, St. Augustine's, they, now this is a number of years later, they believed that the new um, American Standard Bible was the, the best uh, translation to use when you're trying to study the scripture in an in-depth way. So I had to use that as a textbook. Because mm. one of the things my uh, lecturers at seminary told us as soon as we started New Testament studies, I can remember Father Lancelot Bengu saying, the main uh, textbook for our studies is the Bible. Then, of course, all the other commentaries that is based on whatever it is. So church then has designated that um, those, you know, authorized Bible. And, you know, when I was in, in when we were in the, eight, in the 60s and 70s, it was the authorized version or the King James version that took the stage. Then they decided that those of us who were of a different view and our education levels were a little lower than the, the rest, where our English was not first language, but second and third language, they brought in the Good News Bible for modern men. So that was that flooded the Cape Flats. Whilst in the suburban areas, as the white communities, they were reading the authorized version, they were reading the revised standard version, because they were all upper English speakers. Isn't it interesting, eh? In the same mm -hmm. denomination, that distinction was made. But it's very interesting that we now falling in love with certain translations of the Bible that uh, does what? So we have to use a material to witness to Jesus. Mm. But the witness for Jesus must also have an a relationship and an experience of who Jesus is. Because the year in Acts, it says we are witnesses of these events. Yeah. So what if, I'm, I'm doing more of the talking today than you are, brother. No, um, no, 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 no. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to take you a couple lines ahead of that. Um, so the okay. reading is from Acts chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. And in verse 30, because you're talking about the different translations and or how they speak about things. Um, so this one says, the God of our forefathers raised up Jesus, whom you seized and killed by hanging him on a tree. And then it's like that. I, I know it's semantics at this point, but um, like the differences in symbolism between a cross and a tree is is quite great, actually. Mm. Yeah, that's that. That is that is. And look, and this is uh, um, the second volume of Luke's writing. So, mm. um, so was it intentional that, in order not to give credence to the Romans' way of killing you on a cross, and also of perhaps recognizing that the cross played a very important part that now they're saying, uh, let's water this down a little bit and call yeah. it a yeah. 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 Uh, because the cross is too strong and image. 
So in order to get his readers to buy into what he was saying, he changed um, he changed the understanding and said, okay, inevitably it was a triangle, but it was shaped into a cross. But let's yeah. let's take yeah. the image of a tree uh, that he hung on. So what could that significant be? Uh, wh- why a tree? What was why was Rome so obsessed with hanging people on a cross? Um, so I think you are right. There are that subtle differences that uh, would make us, and that's why we got to study more than one translation because you cannot uh, just, you know, suggest that it is um, okay just to read one and be on the safe side. Um, yeah, but uh, I actually had an, an important note here because um, I was reflecting on on this theme of empower us to witness him, and then I I saw the little quote that you pulled out that you were baiting me. Um, the mystery of grace is the power of God by Leila Akita. Um, yes. I, I will ignore that one because we will sit here all day talking about grace and the origin of grace and all of that. But then in the, the gathering. You open up, or at least if you were to be at at, the Pope, or at least doing tomorrow's service, you open up by saying, open to me the gates of righteousness, and the congregation will respond that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. So given all that we have spoken here, who then can we define, or can you define, because these would be the words that you would be saying. Who are these righteous people and what makes them so? I would say that, you see, because you can read that term in a, a inclusive manner mm. or an exclusive manner. Mm. Um, I would say it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's the, 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 the pro- proclamation of it is to say anybody who wants to give thanks to God with their lives will seek to enter into God's righteousness. We can't become righteous on our own. Um, In fact, before he speaks about the righteous shall enter, he talks about the gates of righteousness. And of course, we can relate this. For example, Jesus talks of himself as the gate in the same context Mm. where he talks about being the shepherd, the good shepherd. So. He's the one through whom we enter and an encounter and experience with God, uh, uh, being those who, reflecting on what God has done, are now living lives of thanksgiving to God, will therefore be assumed as those who are seeking to close their, li- their life with, with righteousness. It's interesting that you, that you say that. Um, ask that question. Paul, writing to the Galatian church, says, um, when you are baptized, so, so to speak, you are clothed with Christ. So the garments that we put on as we enter into a relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, becomes God's um, uh, um, garments. Uh, in Ephesians, talks about the whole armor of God. So, you know, there's that, there's that sense that we go through the gates of righteousness, or enter into the gates of righteousness, not because we are righteous, but because we seek to become 
and but oh, but okay. but God's grace then enables us to do so. But on our own, we're not going to be. But but there are those who could propagate that. Well, I deserve to go through that because I'm righteous based on I'm baptized. I've been to church for a hundred years. Um, uh, 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 I'm saved or whatever it is they would say. But uh, Paul throws the gauntlet down and says, there is no one righteous. No, not one. When he writes to the church in Rome. So, uh, and he also goes on and perhaps says it a different way. He said, uh, be careful that you think you stand, that you fall. So, mm. so it's not us who can... You know, there is a manner in which, which I can learn to live good in my life and be influenced in my humanity to do good uh, with my life. Mm. Why do I have that desire? And would that be, um, you know, Abram's faith was accounted to him as righteousness. So it's that faith in God that accounted him because even our good works the prophet Isaiah put the nab on that when he says, your good works are scriver eggs uh, at the end of the day. So our attempt to be good, I think it's a good attempt. We must compliment and people are trying to that. I don't have the right to say. In fact, somebody put it in my mind that God witnesses those who are trying to do good and will account it to them. You know, um, how they come to... You know, is it a share in his righteousness? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm I'm not able to judge that. But if somebody does good and they don't stand in the same faith circle that I'm in, then like look look the guy that, that started gifts of the giver mm. it comes to the Muslim faith. Mm -hmm. it is, who died recently, may God grant so eternal rest. But what a vision and what generosity. Um can those works be de decried as unrighteous? Because what they do, not even governments do without tax money. Mm. And, and, and this guy's had this big heart, not to reach just people in our own country, but people in other countries that have been suffering mm. very bad. So, so, yeah, let God be the judge of that. But, hey, if there's a path to righteousness, let's take it. There yeah, must but be that, those who live with thankfulness to the Lord who makes yeah, us righteous. Yeah. So, like, there again, like, uh, uh, reminded of another conversation I've had recently where the idea was again, they grew up under a different era. There's an older person and was served the Bible in religious study at school. Um, and that was the way that you live. That was laid down as like the law and now characterizes a lot of the, I won't say evils, but for lack of a better term and for brevity, the evils of the world are attributed to like the lack of religious instruction um, and people not living to the Bible. So like, again, in the context of everything that we've been discussing and with a view to that little quote that you pulled out there, my argument is always, do you need the Bible? to tell you how to be a good person. And if one in three people on this planet, only one in three people, identify as Christian, that means the overwhelming majority, two-thirds of the population of this planet, go about 
being good people without religious instruction? Well, I think every one of us walk around with tomes of reference points that inform us, that helps us with our inner conversation, Mm. um, for the desire to live good lives um, that just don't benefit us, but benefit others. Um, if, If one in three decides the Bible is a tool for their lives because it holds, in my view, the conversation we need uh, between us and God. It holds the stories of things that helps us to identify um, the way we ought to be defining our lives. Then that's one third who has the Bible as a tool of reference uh, for the conversation they need on the inside to improve, to grow, and to ensure that their thinking and that their actions and that their words and behavior could be, uh, you know, reflecting or witnessing to a life of righteous, seeking to live righteously. The, if, if there is material available that others choose, like the words of philosophers or another religious document, um, at the end of the day, uh, I believe God is God looks at all of this. Um, an incredible scriptural text for me, and there you see my reference point is the Bible, mm-hmm. Psalm 25, verse 7. That, that made me think, and I used it as part of my sermon in the funeral, which we read in the funeral. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. And it just got me to think that this person had now grown towards a kind of an adult status in his life. But he looks back at his youth and looks back at his life, and he really doesn't want to be defined by sin and transgression. They were part of his actions, part of his deeds, part of his words. But he understood that life was far more than being defined by sin and transgressions. And of course, somehow sin and transgressions has defined humanity. I mean, the violence in the world and all of that. And so he then goes on. He says, Lord, don't remember me. And look at me through the lenses of sin and transgressions, and especially in my past. He goes to say, but in your mercy, according to your mercy, think on me. Look at me from the perspective of mercy. So I I would say that those three people we are talking about, of which one third possibly references their lives to scripture, to the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, God looks on all three through the lens of mercy. Um, mm-hmm. how he did them. So I can't say because I read the scriptures which talk about Jesus determines that the other two are wrong. Yeah. Because that same scripture doesn't tell me to do that. Son of man came not to, to condemn, but to redeem. So there's no way that I can say uh, that scripture's telling me to condemn those other two. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. I may need to still and listen to the other two. I may I may need to be in consultation with them. I need to be in conversation with them. 
who knows that yeah. what they say and what they're living their lives by and the reference points of their lives helps me to even go deeper into the scriptures than I that I need to at the moment. So I'm that is a very important um, a community of people that we need to be part of. Because um, because mm. don't we influence one another? You know, we we, we play an influ- influential role in each other's life just by being in conversation, being yeah. in, in yeah. you know. And 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 each of us are challenged to think after we've been with each other. So, you know what did I know? Lindsay says he's this, but hey, you know what he said. They helped me to now understand even deeply what something was said by Jesus in the Gospels. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. No, no. That's why I I have no problems raising my children as Christian. That's why I'll be in church at the 9.30 service tomorrow. Um, please keep your stones to yourselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it, it gives them a, a, a easily, easily digest, or at least it gives them grounding as Christians into an easily digestible philosophy that has been interrogated over millennia or at least yeah at this point um and puts them into a global community of like-minded people who have been raised on the same philosophy on the same uh yeah so the other thing that i try to do um when discussing obviously from my um less believing perspective um is to open up their minds to understand that this is only one way of looking at things um, and that there are other ideas. And that's why, like, I will always stand out. I'll always preface anything I say of, like, I believe this. This is what you are asking me, like, means um, in terms of, like, the scripture and your current philosophical understanding. Um, You are free to make up your own mind so that they can know that it is okay to have other thoughts, have other points of view, and then hopefully that allows them to permit others to have different points of view. Yeah. So, so, so given that, I want to then just share with you, when I look at the theme, empower us as witnesses of him, of Jesus, mm-hmm. and to ask the question ongoingly, why? Is Jesus important to be witnessed to in the current time, as in all the other times? Um, You know, the one thing that I appreciate of the gospel is when Jesus says, the Father sent me to you, is that in coming to us and in the interest the Father showed, the uh, the embrace the Father has of who I am, where I am, and how Jesus comes to be in solidarity with me is a very important point of why I believe I need to witness to him. Mm. Also, mm. the Father sent me so that I can send you. Mm. That mm. our mission is far bigger than what earth can comprehend. Uh, it's a divine mission. Um, our sole purpose is not to destroy earth, but to renew it. 
Um, and when I talk about the work of salvation, I don't talk just about saving of human souls. I talk about all of God's creation, which mm -hmm. includes this universe that is so huge, we don't have full comprehension of that. Mm. Thirdly, why I believe it's so important is, um, you know, sometimes we look at others' energy, their enthusiasm, and their attitude to life. And we perhaps would long to have that kind of energy and that kind of enthusiasm. And here, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. He blesses them with that which in the Old Testament is the beautiful, difficult word to understand, the Ruach, mm. the very life-giving breath of God um, to empower us to live. The, the, the next reason why I believe Jesus is so, and probably this is the most, one of the most important parties, we're living in a world where revenge and getting back at each other um, is far more our initial primitive response. Mm. And then we have to work our way towards forgive the sins of any. Uh, that, those are the words that strike me so profoundly. I'm, I'm sure they must have been the first words on the cross, but I've got no proof of that from the cross. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That was the first one I think is the first words breathed from the cross. And so forgiveness is not a ready attitude. It's not a part of our vocabulary. You know, we our primitive side, our ego uh, has other other ways of of of, re, of responding when people venge us. Oh, if I can only just have the heart of forgiveness, which is the heart of God. Mm. Then to also recognize that even amongst those who claim to believe, all of us are struggling like Thomas was. It's fine for you to come and tell me you've seen the Lord, but hey, yeah, I need something more deeper than this. Mm. I, I need I need my own experience. Sadly, over the years we've we've pointed Thomas out as doubting. Mm -hmm. I was called a doubting Thomas by my mother. Is it? But you know, <laughs> doubting Thomas is not a bad thing because, you know, you're struggling with the issues of life and faith. You're struggling with the issue of meaning. You're struggling with the, 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 the ideas and the definitions that others have put into our minds. And we want to see with our own eyes and hear with our own ears and perceive with our own minds and hearts. Is this true? You've seen, excited for you, but I still need to see. And so, is it bad to be a doubting Thomas? No. The shadow of faith is doubt. Those who claim that they, they just firmly believe, well, we're marching towards that, but without doubts intact. We need to say. So so I love the fact that the story includes the wrestling with the issues of faith. Mm. Um, I, lo I love that, that, that reasoning. And um, you actually said short on the gospel. Yeah. And it's I, I like these conversations because it's like we were we were telepathically in sync um, with each other. 
So the gospel is according to John chapter 20, verses 19 to, 20, to 31. And you went through beautifully um, verses 21 and 22, which is Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the father sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. But then my question comes with 23, verse 23, which says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So you've said, you've spoken about the growth that people go through. Um, and in, in the psalm, when, when you were reflecting on the words, um, how that person, the psalmist, had grown and doesn't want to be seen by their sins anymore. And I believe, like, I'm, 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 I'm pro-prison um, reform, or at least the opportunity for people to reform themselves in the justice system and not be put to death because of any crimes, um, because we can all have an opportunity for redemption um, on a long enough timeline all of us are sinners and saints, um, to put it in, in those kinds of perspective. But you personally, as Archdeacon Rodney Whiteman, you are a modern day apostle. Um, how do you interpret that line and how do you retain sin if you do at all? Um, you know, those are words that are uttered at the ordination service of a priest. Mm. And what bishops sometimes do is they sign you with a chrism oil mm. and in the palms of your hands as well when they saying that statement that Jesus says, um, forgive the sins and retain if there's any. Um, probably leads me to the confessional. Hmm. So somebody steps into confessional and says, I want to make a confession. Do I then just say, okay, make the confession and I will determine, according to the process followed, what counsel I give you and whether I can give you absolution for that. So if I, for example, am confronted with somebody that's hands are dripping with blood and comes in and says, hey, you know, I need to make a confession, Reverend. I said, okay, let's go to the confessional. We make the confession. And what is your confession about? I'm here to say that I killed somebody. Mm. And I really need forgiveness of our sins. This is a sinner whose hands are dripping with the evidence of the murder. What counsel do I give him before I give him the absolution? Do I say... I'm happy that you are making the confession before God that you killed somebody. But there are consequences to your actions that you need to face. I will not withhold absolution for you. But what I need you first do is that you act on the counsel I give you. And the counsel, so in the confession is both counsel and absolution. So what's the counsel that I give you? Said, okay, let you and I go to the police station. And you tell them what you told me in the confessional, because that's another way of making the confession. Mm -hmm. Then we ensure that the body is picked up, make sure that all's well. And, 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 and you go through the process that will follow. 
if you really genuine with your confession and, and let me take you to the police station, I will then in that process perform the absolution. Absolution does not mean that you exonerated from the consequences of your actions, especially when you take another life. You still have to go through the process, but what you would have done is that your mindset and your heart would be changed. You would be living in remorse and there would be some form of, um, of, of, of retribution in that you would then be able to say to the family, I'm sorry that I did this, I was under a state of madness or whatever it is, but that you would follow the process of justice. Remember I said to you, I'm not withholding the absolution, mm. but I want you to act on the counsel I give you. Now, would that be a retention of, of not, not absolving somebody who was using, who may have been using the confessional as an escape route uh, mm. to because the confessional is supposed to be done in confidentiality. Mm. So am I ready to just say absolve? Or do I actually also say before absolution or combined with absolution is counsel on what you've confessed? And then I'm able to bring in the absolution. So I must say to you, when those words were uttered over us when you were ordained, my mind has always been to the first part of that statement. First part of the statement is forgive the sins of you. We must listen to that first. And as I explained to you about the confessional, the second part would come into there that if the sins are of such a nature where it has cost life, counsel, in any of, of the confessions is very relevant. Now, if somebody murders somebody and come to the Eucharistic service where we say, let us call to mind and confess our sin, mm. and they have murder on their hearts to confess to God, and we say that you've received the absolution, therefore um, you have been forgiven. Yes, God has forgiven you but there's also consequences to that forgiveness. Mm. You can't just absorb the, the forgiveness and say, now I'm exonerated. No. Forgiveness makes you more responsible. Makes mm. you then stand up and say, now I need to say, my actions cause somebody's life to be lost or somebody to be injured badly. I need to stand responsible. That's what forgiveness would teach us if we take it seriously. So you can't just say, well, you know, I was at the Eucharist and the Father forgave me there and um, I'm, I'm forgiven. Yeah. No, 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 no. Forgiveness brings about responsibility. It doesn't exonerate us from the consequences of of, of action. So, for example, if I'm forgiven and have a deep sense of forgiveness at the Eucharist tomorrow, but realize I had an argument with Trudy and it's not solved, the responsibility of receiving forgiveness, which has generously been poured out, I need to come and say to Trudy, Money, I'm very sorry for what I said to you or the argument we've had. That would be the meaningful understanding of the outcome of forgiveness received. Mm. But I'm a big fan of of the separation of of church and state. Um, that 
implies that, or at least mandates that, um, the forgiveness you get from whatever deity you pray to is only relevant to your belief system and not to the constitutional laws that govern this wonderful country. And I think I will close off. It's a bit heavy. It, we haven't closed off on such a heavy note in a long time. Uh, but, I, but I, I can make one more point if, yeah, if yeah, once yeah. you finish, because there's another point I'd like to make. Continue what you say. Um, yes, I will, will close off my commentary. Um, and yes, remind you again that the choice verses that we have discussed are down in the podcast description, along with some of the prayers and some of the collect specifically. And Father Rodney reaches out across many digital ways. There's live streams of the church service on on Facebook. Um, there's a WhatsApp group. There's a whole bunch of things. The Georges is very active in the digital space. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Over to you, sir. Yeah, there is for me a consequence within the social, political, and economic area, which Jesus gives us, which I didn't mention, and I wanted to just one of the mm. points as to why I believe I need to witness to him, is where he says, peace be with you. What am I going to do with that gift in a world where there is warring and conflict and argumentation? Um, and so that has got social implications. Mm. It has political implications. And it's connected to all the stuff I already said coming out of the gospel, which is why I am praying that God would empower me to be a witness to Jesus and why I believe Jesus is still relevant for our time and will be relevant for all times as he was in the past, now, and in the future. Because there's never going to be a time when we will not need to speak of all the things that are connected to him and peace is one of them it was very interesting that at the end of the funeral service today one of the people who i met just before the service and who came to me after i was coming back into the church and his words to me was shalom reverend mm. depths of that peace which passes all understanding. And so I hope that, you know, we are witnesses, whether we like it or not, but of what are we witnesses? Of whom are we a witness? Yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank everybody for tuning in. Blessings. Thank you very much.